All right, Naran, I have uh, a poem for you, or a section of a poem. Yay! Okay, here we go. My heart rouses, thinking to bring you news of something that concerns you, and concerns many men. Look at what passes for the new. You will not find it there, but in despised poems. It is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. That's from Asphodel, That Greeny Flower, um, a poem from 1962 by William Carlos Williams. And I love it because it has this like really bold claim that people die every day for lack of what is found in poetry. What do you think of that? Uh, well, I think it's a bold claim. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll get to this, but like a lot of poetry, I feel like I'm left out. Like I'm missing something really awesome and obvious and moving and like compelling for people. And I have my own like fleeting encounters with poetry, but like if, if, if this is truly right, like I am truly missing out. I think that a lot of people feel that way about poetry and you're definitely not alone. But I also think people have pretty narrow ideas about what counts as poetry. Maybe it's different and a different kind of poetry would speak to you more. And in fact, I bet there are other kinds of poetry that do speak to you. And I want to talk to you about that. Yeah, I can't wait. Hello and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachko Sasseri. Today we're talking about poetry. That's right, poetry. Didn't think you'd be revisiting that after high school, did you? I didn't. (laughs) But poetry helped people share stories, information, and beauty for centuries well before we were all reading and writing. And it still seeps through the nooks and crannies of our culture in a million little ways. But at the same time, a lot of people don't feel super comfortable with it. So we're gonna unpack what makes some hate it while other people geek out on poetry so much. So, Maria, I'm going to be really honest with you, Um, and I know I'm talking to a literature professor, um, but I don't always feel super comfortable around poetry. Um, I think that's changing, but I guess my really honest-to-goodness feelings are that, like, I always feel like I'm missing something. I feel like people have these, like, poignant, like, moving moments, and if I don't share it, I'm just, like... I I just really constantly feel like I'm missing something. But like every once in a while something sneaks up on me and I I actually really do feel emotions. I like have new experiences with language that I don't have with other mediums. So so I guess that's all just to say sometimes I don't get it, but when I get it it can be really awesome. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like you're not at all in the minority. In fact, statistics show you're definitely not in the minority. You're part of the norm. And I think it's fair. A lot of people get their, you know, art and beauty and entertainment from other places than like written poetry nowadays. And that's just true for most people. I'm a literature professor, but I'm not a poetry scholar. And I definitely have moments where I'm mm. reading poems and I'm like, uh, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. You know, this is like literally my job. So, um, you know, you shouldn't feel bad. And um, just looking at some of the stats. So um, according to a national survey of participation in the arts, in 1982, only 17% of American adults had read a work of poetry in the past year. 
And in 2012, four years ago, that was down to 6.7%. So poetry is one of the least popular arts. Uh, right now, only beaten by opera. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I know. And there's a lot of reasons why it could be that people are, like, skeeved out by poetry. A lot of people last had to read poetry, like, in school. And there's this one uh, yeah. guy, he's a poet who's writing right now, who also teaches, J.G. McClure. And he thinks this might be part of, like, the reason everyone hates poetry is that they had to do it in school. Mm. You know, they learned how to read it while they were in school. And he thinks that people are often taught to read it kind of in a bad way in school. We'll link to this. Um, first of all, he says that students are made to feel like they could never speak back meaningfully to the great masters of poetry that they're reading. Yeah. Like these like big fancy names who are supposed to be the great people we read, like John Donne or Emily Dickinson or um, even William Carlos Williams. And people often, when you're a student, you're like, I just can't really talk to those people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is about interpretation. He was saying that people are often taught as, like, messages to be decoded, um, not as mm. just, like, these experiences to be had. It's kind of like what you were saying about, like, a fear of missing the answer, right? There's, like, a clear moral mm -hmm. you're supposed to pick out. And if you don't get it, then you've, like, messed up. Absolutely. And, like, if you're thinking about this in school terms, like, of course, in, like, math, there is a right answer. And so... If you get graded on things, you get graded on your interpretation. So I'm sure there are, like, pedagogical reasons that contribute to those perceptions. And then, like, it's just, I just find a lot of stuff impenetrable. And I give up. Like, I'm just, like, not for me. And I move on. And that's the luxury of being a grown-up is being like, well, no one's making me do this anymore. Yeah. And, I mean, I th and so I think it's fair. You're not alone. And... I thought one of the reasons it would be cool to do this episode is to let people take a minute to think about it and, like, face down their fear, love, hatred, ambivalence about poetry and, like, just talk a little bit about it because it was, like, so important for centuries, you know? Yeah. And now it's almost gone. Or so we think, right? It seems to be, like, dead. Yeah, or, like, the manifestation, like, the traditional manifestation of, like, written poetry is maybe gone, but there are other associated forms of poetry that we're going to unpack that like all of a sudden I actually do get it or I do like it and I actually when we talked about this topic I was like I don't really have anything to say that's like not embarrassing because I feel so not connected but then I actually did some introspection and this is super cheesy but I found all of these spaces in my life where poetry manifests and so I, ho I hope people get a little bit of that out of this too. Yay. Oh, my heart feels so warm. Okay. So, <laughs> so to help think through some of this, I talked to my colleague and friend, Professor Adhar Nordesai. He is a Shakespeare scholar at Bard. Um, and we're going to talk about why he's dedicated his life's work to poetry, a little bit about the history of the form, and then the two of us dig into a couple of poems that we really like, using some of the training that we got as literature scholars, but also just as people who are reading words together. Hi. Hello. Can you tell us who you are? I am Adhar Nordesai. I am the assistant professor and assistant professor of literature at Bard College, where I teach courses on Shakespeare and Renaissance poetry. Woo! Um, all right. Well, I guess first question. How are you able to justify studying poetry, dedicating your life to poetry um, in this crazy world that we live in? Uh, so my first uh, response is that I don't know if I ever felt the need to justify poetry. I don't know if poetry needs justification, in part because 
Poetry, like all art, is one of these things that reminds us that not everything we do demands justification. Um, there are some things we do just to remind us that pleasure is good and that we will we'll do things anyway, regardless of whether we are compelled to or not. But when I teach, I also try to stress that studying things like poetry um, is a way to broaden your imagination and promote your curiosity and reward uh, experimentation and open-mindedness. And there are other things that do this, but poetry is also just like a really lovely way to do it. Um, so th those are the kind of things I stress as why poetry has a place in the classroom. Nice. Here, here. I like the, the non-justification justification <laughs> a lot. All right. So let's talk about the history of poetry. You are a scholar who looks at relatively early literature. So uh, let's start by talking about, you know, why did people start putting words together in this way? Um, and why has it seemed to stick around for so long? So I'll open with the caveat that I am not a historian of poetry exactly. Fair, um, fair. And I can't really speak to the classical origins of it. But poetry, to my understanding, was always associated with song. And uh, part of it in its rhythmic structures were ways for to build community, to pass on knowledge, to make it easier to remember things. Mm -hmm. um, Homer's oral, like it was passed down in the oral tradition um, because it wasn't necessarily written down. Um, and over time, poetry also became this means of sort of sharing your own personal idea, your view of the world, and announcing yourself to the world. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things I find really interesting is looking at a lot of the formal aspects of poetry that we ask our students to pick out or to listen for. So things like alliteration, where the mm -hmm. beginning of words have the same sounds, or rhyme, um, or even meter. So kind of being able to measure out how long a line is and how the stresses work in them. Um, and how those, you know, at one point were really useful for being able to remember, like, what word comes next. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, starts with an A sound, yeah. probably rhymes with happy, right. right? And then you kind of are able to figure out what the next word is. And that way you're able to retain this literature that, you know, before people were really writing and reading as frequently yeah. um, as came about Lynch later. Yeah. You know, I think it's a really cool way of understanding it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. One of the reasons that Shakespeare wrote his plays largely in poetry in iambic pentameter was, uh, people think, originally to help actors remember their lines. There are even jokes about them counting syllables on their fingers um, so they know when to stop speaking. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So let's let's read a poem. Shall we read a poem? Awesome, yeah, sure. Okay, let's read the poem, and then we can close to read the poem and explain... What that means? What the hell we mean by that, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you want to read it? Do you want me to read it? How do you want to do it? Uh, I'll read it, because okay. I like reading it, because it's super fun to read. Um, <laughs> So the poem we chose uh, for this day is uh, a poem that I sometimes teach in my introduction to literature class. Um, it's a big hit with students. I hope uh, everyone will understand why once we talk about it. <laughs> um, it's titled The Word Plum by the poet Helen Chasen. It was written, I believe, in 1968. So here I go. The Word Plum. The Word Plum is delicious. Pout and push, luxury of self-love and savoring murmur, full in the mouth and falling like fruit. Taut skin, pierced, bitten, provoked into juice and tart flesh, question and reply, lip and tongue of pleasure. Okay. You read it so calmly. I can't help but read it in this, like, totally dirty way. Yeah, I, I, I want to veer into that, <laughs> but... Um, 
It's first to let it rest innocently on the page. Luxury of self love. No. I know. Um, all right. So what? So what do you? What do you like about this poem? So the the poem um, is this great example of a piece of writing that looks at something very sort of innocuous, something seemingly harmless, something everyday, like just not even not even plums himself, but the the word plum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it spends some time with it. And in one in some sense, all poetry is just a way of spending time with with an idea. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I just mostly like the dirty element mm-hmm. of it. I mean, to me, I think it really calls out the fact that just saying the word plum, you kind of have to make out with yourself. Mm-hmm. And by spending so much time with it, as you put it so nicely, um, you en- basically have like an extended makeout session with yourself while mm-hmm. you're kind of thinking through the sounds in the word plum. So, you know, talking about alliteration before, yeah. all of those repeated P sounds, just like the P sound in plum, like mm-hmm. pout and push, you know, that you have to kind of like pucker your lips together and kind of push them together in this kind of like kissing yourself way, you know, and then you fall into the L's, Mm -hmm. the luxury of self love. And now you're licking yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, you're licking your teeth. And so basically by the time you get to the end of the word where they like kind of round vowels and the hums, you've basically had this like a really sexy out loud experience yep. with your own mouth. Or you've been provoked into juice. <laughs> Woo! Um, uh, hopefully saliva, you know, yeah. if you had a really good time reading it, maybe other juice. There are, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I we stop there. But I mean, one thing, and here's the fun thing about poetry, is that it promotes different kinds of reading. Mm. And so I totally am with you on the making out aspect of it. But I'd say the poem is not making about making out with yourself. Uh-oh. You're making out with the poem. Ah, um, go on. Because what is a makeout is is this sort of give and take relationship where you're kind of learning how to deal with the other person's maneuvering, right? <laughs> um, and so, like to to talk about like why we're even talking about tongues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the first two lines, right, the second line is this magnificent sort of exercise in how to play with a word because the first two lines are the word plum is delicious. Pout and push, luxury of self-love and savoring murmur. And in that line, you have the sequence of sounds of plum, pout, luxury, murmur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so P-L-L-P-L-U, mm, mm-hmm. right? And so it's making your mouth do these things in the same way that somebody you're making out with <laughs> is going to give you a sort of like tug of war, sort of goading you into moving in one direction or the other. Uh, and it's playful like that. Yeah, I can see that. And also, like, words like pout and push, there also are words that capture, it's not just sounds, they capture, like, mm-hmm. the pout of a mouth, the kind of pushback of, like, flesh against flesh, mm-hmm. right? And um, luxury of self-love. I mean, for me, the self-love is where I'm kind of getting the sure. the making out with yourself part. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you could, you know, some people could argue that hooking up with someone else can have the same effect. Yeah, so. I get that in the, especially in the question and reply, mm. lip and tongue of pleasure, right? where there is this sort of exchange occurring. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be with oneself or it could be with (laughs) another. Um, Yeah. I mean, one of the other things about the poem, and to get even more into why we're getting this dirtiness, which may not seem (laughs) apparent on on the first reading, is not only is it doing the sensual stuff with your mouth, which a lot of poetry does, Mm -hmm. but it's using the associative elements of language, right? These words all point to the word plum, but they also point in these wildly different directions. So phrases like taut skin and flesh, right, uh, provoked into juice, 
with even a slightly dirty mind, you can't start <laughs> help but think about human bodies, yeah. right? Um, and this, the poem is invoking for us, right? For sure. Yeah, I mean, I always tell my students that in order to be able to close read, all you need is a dirty mind. Mm -hmm. So the ability to read on more than one level at once, mm -hmm. um, to kind of take pleasure in puns and plays with language. Um, yeah, and this kind of distinction between denotative meanings, like the kind of surface meaning of a word, mm -hmm. um, and connotative meanings. So right. like, what are the kind of the connotations that a word pulls up. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure, like, taut skin, pierced, bitten, provoked into juice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just biting into a plum. Mm -hmm. But it's also kind of S&M hot times, mm -hmm. you know? And so suddenly this is all part of a much kind of sexier, more luxurious experience mm -hmm. with a fruit, whatever that forbidden fruit may be. Right. Cool. So, I mean... What's all the point of this, of this? Yeah, what's the point of this, right? All of yeah. this, like, rambling about this one short poem, mm -hmm. you know, brings us, I guess, to the question of what's the difference between just reading mm -hmm. and close reading, which, you know, we did a kind of meandering version of it, but pretty right. much what we just did. We did mm -hmm. it. We performed a close reading. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, what we did was we took looked at elements of the poem and then tried to relate them to uh, a reading of it as this invocation to make out with yourself uh, or think about how language itself can be sexy just by being by by the way that it treats our mouths right um a close reading is different from reading i guess in that sense that you're not reading something that you're close reading for information mm -hmm. like you're reading a newspaper article although you could close read a newspaper article um a close reading is a thing that you make alongside or with the help of the thing that you're reading mm -hmm. it points to new ideas that only the time spent with the, the text um, and your brain, your feelings, and your dirty mind um, can produce. <laughs> no. Yeah, and I mean, of course, it doesn't have to just be dirty readings. Right. There's all kinds of readings out there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think this idea of like using the evidence that we find in the text itself in order to kind of develop a theory of what's happening in the text, right? Mm -hmm. So always pointing back the way that we did to this line or this word or this kind of series of repetitions mm -hmm. allows us to kind of build up evidence so that we're not coming up with something that's like totally unfounded and rando, right? right? So it's not just like I had these feels and feels are a good place to start, mm -hmm. but that, you know, you can take a text and find all these little pieces inside of it that help you to, to show other people right. that the way you're analyzing it or reading it is grounded in something real. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the way that you described it as building a theory of some idea that's coming, that's flitting forth into your brain, right? <laughs> um, because one of the things that poetry does that makes it different from a newspaper article uh, is that poetry relies on alienating language from us, mm -hmm. right? It wants us to see language as not sitting still, right, mm -hmm. as, as being something that we play with that we can use to think in different ways. Mm -hmm. And a close reading asks us to identify those different ways and bring them back and share them with another person, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, once we can make a persuasive case, I think that it's pretty easy to make a persuasive case of this poem, <laughs> that, like, yeah, isn't it, isn't it making you think weirdly dirty thoughts, probably dirtier thoughts than we're even talking about because we're being very polite, um, right? And that's, that's, the, that's the director's cut of the <laughs> podcast. Yeah. yeah, but like it validates, like the close reading will validate that impression because words do work upon us, mm -hmm. right, in more ways than just the, the straightforward ways that mm -hmm. we issue them to one another. 
Yeah, and I feel yeah. like, you know, one of the great things about poetry particularly, I mean, and some, you know, great fiction can do this too, but poetry really sets out to make us think about language, you mm-hmm. know, and how flexible it is and how rich it is and how much we can really play with it mm-hmm. and to ask us to not just use it like a tool, mm-hmm. right? Um, right, but to see it as, as this kind of wonderful... Yeah. I don't know, resource that we have. Yeah, and at its, and its most potent, it becomes this tool for political change and mm-hmm. uh, and moving beyond stayed habits of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. If we start seeing that language is not something that is so defined that it can only mean in one way, then we start seeing this expanding to other habits of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Populeticus see patterns of our thought that are being ingrained or calcified and set in stone, can now be rattled um, because we just can see them from a different angle. Um, poetry lives in that space of looking at something from a slightly different way. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Rattle your brains, everybody. Mm-hmm. Listen to some poetry. And I think listening is a big part, right? Mm-hmm. Like reading it silently is cool, mm-hmm. um, but there is something about reading it out loud yeah. that um, is really powerful too. Yeah. I mean, as this poem shows, like it's poetry is embodied. Mm-hmm. It it reminds you that you have a body and it insists that you pay attention to what that body is doing. And you have things like rhythm and meter and poetry's association with songs, even song lyrics, mm-hmm. right? By putting language in these positions where they are playful and fun and danceable even, or you can sing them, right? Makes it something different, makes it something potent that has different capabilities and even responsibilities, um, which makes it more, more interesting. Yeah. We are obviously massive poetry boosters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, yeah. if you were going to tell our, our listeners anything about poetry or mm-hmm. close reading, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you want them to know? So the, the one thing really is, uh, and then people will say this and it's kind of trite and cliche, um, but don't be afraid of it, right? Um, literally just trust your instincts. If you don't like it, you don't like it. It's not working for you. There are thousands, hundreds, millions of poems uh, uh, out there. Um, give them a shot because when it works, it's amazing, right? You really feel like you connect with another mind out there in the ether. Um, and don't doubt the weird, dirty, silly, funny associations in your brain. Maybe that's the place where you connect with the poem. And that in itself is great. It's a pleasure to do that. Yeah. And if you don't get it right away, it's not the end of the world. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? It, you don't have to do it for any reason. You do it because you want to, and poetry is there for you. Don't have to justify it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. That was All right. so fun. That was fun. Thanks a lot. Don't you think it's Okay, Maria, that was kind of totally amazing. I'm just, I basically thought that was so raunchy and hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the plum poem? Yeah, like, it was, like, scandal. I know. <laughs> and I, 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 I just love it. I think it's really fun. I love when you guys talk about the, um, this is something I never thought about, but, like, when you actually, the saying of the words out loud and the way your mouth moves, like, that was that kind of blew my mind. I was just thinking of like the image of a plum and the imagery. And then when you guys got into that part, I was like, whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) I was also super like beat red. Like I'm I'm, like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of mortified, but only in the best way. (laughs) 
<laughs> Only because I'm a grandma. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, and that's the other thing, right? I think a lot of times when we think about poetry, we just imagine like someone's 50 page long Victorian poem and presume it's going to be really like kind of stiff and heavy, you know? And there's like all kinds of stuff going on. Oh, yeah. No, like, like I always think of manners. <laughs> I, I mean, my mom really loves poetry, so I kind of wish I gave it a better go. And I was quite the poet in second grade. But like, once you get past the rhymey stuff and you really start dealing with real emotions and some of this other deeper stuff, um, I guess what I found intimidating is kind of the juicy stuff. No pun intended in terms of puns. <laughs> So it was totally clear to me when you guys were talking that there are methods and systems around analysis and unpacking a poem. So I was wondering if you could share some of that. Yeah. Um, you, thanks for asking. Because I do think that a lot of times when you tell people that you're a literature professor, they think you just like read literature and then yeah. that's your job, <laughs> which would be amazing. I wish that was my only job. Um, no. <laughs> But what we're doing is uh, basically a form of what's called close reading. Um, and we talked a little bit about what that is. Um, but this idea of using what's inside of the text to make um, an argument or come up with an idea about what's happening inside of the text, this really comes out of a move that was inspired in large part by this essay in 1967 by a French critic called Roland Barthes. Um, and the essay is mm -hmm. called The Death of the Author. This idea basically is that he suggests that as soon as an author has like written something down, the author mm -hmm. is dead. That person's feelings about how to read that work of literature are immediately don't matter. And like, oh, wow. Yeah, you're dead. So this now. applies to more than just poetry, obviously. Totally. Like all written expression. Mm hmm. Exactly. I mean, I, I use the, um, the J.K. Rowling example a lot in my classes. So. You know how, like, after all the Harry Potter books came out, at the end of it, she was like, oh, and P.S., Dumbledore's gay. Yeah. I was, to my students, I say, like, according to the death of the author, like, we can't take that into account when reading sexuality in Harry Potter. What we can read is, like, if there are enough, like, moments of textual evidence in Harry Potter where, like, Dumbledore has, like, these homoerotic like tensions or moments that arise, then we could say, mm -hmm. okay, I can maybe see that. But if they're just not there and then afterwards... J.K. Rowling is trying to be like, also, I have a gay character, and he's a super important character. You have to be like, I'm sorry. I'm glad you think that, but it's just not in the text. Oh, my gosh. That takes away so much from the author. It's like you're doing this for the world. You have to sacrifice your vision. <laughs> totally. It's it's that like kind of approach where being the reader, you kind of have the autonomy to go in and say, like, well, what do I see in the text? And then whatever you can say you see and back it up with evidence from the text, like, boom, that's it. You're right. I love that. It's very empowering as a reader. Yeah. And that way, that feeling of like, you have to have like the right answer. It's like bullshit because you don't have to have yeah. one right answer. You just have to have evidence in the text to back up where you're coming from. Um, I feel like I've had multiple head explosions. Thank you. Oh, yay. Well, I, I mean, hopefully that people will use this as a way to feel a little bit freed from this sense of like, I have to get the right answer. Rather, it's just like, what do you see? This is my liberation, Maria. This is like straight up my liberation. <laughs> oh, well, you liberate me like every day on so many other things. So I'm glad <laughs> I can give it. a little poetry liberation. <laughs> poetry has been around for a long time and served a lot of purposes. Those purposes may be changing as our mediums change and our ways of sharing stories and experiences shift. 
but there is still so much richness to be gotten out of spending some time with a poem, which I just learned. Um, at the same time, reading like an academic isn't the only way. And coming up, we'll talk about some of the many other ways you can get down with poetry. That take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind Down the foggy ruins of time Far past the frozen leaves The haunted frightened trees Out to the windy beach Far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow So, okay, we talked a little bit about poetry on paper in class, like in English class. Um, But, you know, poetry is also all around us in lots of ways. And I think that Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize for Literature this year in 2016 is, you know, a huge sign that the world is accepting the fact that popular music also counts as poetry a lot of times. Um, Not everyone was on board with that, but a lot of people were like, yes, obviously, way overdue for Dylan to win. And really the expectation being that he's this, like, great, contemporary poet um but he's also a musician so anytime you listen to a song there's poetry you know embedded in the lyrics there totally like lemonade for sure i mean because in that case it's not only beyonce's lyrics which are amazing but then also she uh brought in this kenyan-born somali poet worsen shire um she's the first young poet laureate of london from 2014 and um she adapted a bunch of her poetry for Beyonce's visual album. And then Beyonce reads that poetry between the songs as this kind of like part of connecting the whole narrative of the album. Take one pint of water, add a half pound of sugar, the juice of eight lemons, the zest of half lemon. Pour the water from one jug, then into the other several times. Strain through a clean napkin. Grandmother, the alchemist, you spun gold out of this hard life, conjured beauty from the things left behind, found healing where it did not live, discovered the antidote in your own kitchen broke the curse with your own two hands. You passed these instructions down to your daughter, who then passed it down to her daughter. So one of the most powerful cultural moments of 2016 involves a poet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I loved the poetry between the songs when I watched the album. It was part of what made it like completely incredible to me. And that clip that we just played is actually one of my favorite parts. That's great. Um, and in, as I said earlier, like I think that a more rigorous examination of my life reveals that there are encounters with poetry that aren't like Wordsworth in a classroom (laughs) um, that are actually more powerful encounters. And so I think it would just be useful to share some of that. We talk a lot of times about how technology impacts some of the topics we take on. And I feel like with poetry, that's the kind of shareability, the virality of different kinds, especially of performances and of music contributes to a different kind of experience. And basically what I'm talking about here is like the performance of, um, of 
spoken word poetry and other kinds of poetry and people sharing them. And one of my favorite things I discovered this year was, um, I think her name is Amy Mahmoud and she's, um, a Yale graduate this year. And she was the winner of the individual world poetry slam championships. And she wrote a really beautiful poem that I just encountered because someone shared it on Facebook. And that's not unusual. And I think that there's a whole new genre of artists whose repertoires include poetry that use Instagram and Facebook to share and as basically as their medium. Another person that I encountered through Instagram is Rupi Kaur, who wrote Milk and Honey, and she does a lot of different kinds of visual art too, but that's how I got into her poetry. So um, all of this is to say there's lots of different ways we get things these days, and I'm not sure I would have sought out any of this, but it comes my way, and then I get moved, and then I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, even Morrison Shire, right, she was like a Tumblr poet, basically. Her stuff was got like shared around popularly, even though it wasn't getting the kind of acclaim that like the white dudes with MFAs were getting, you know. I, I think it's also interesting that the people that you're pointing to here, these are like women of color, right, who are often yeah. um, getting heard, getting seen, getting boosted through viral culture. And I think that's really interesting about like some of the shifting nature of poetry and who's accessing it and how. Yeah, totally. And I, I would say that like some of the stuff that has the most emotional resonance for me are other women of color expressing themselves um, in ways that I can relate to. But another place where I encounter, have encountered poetry um, is the subway in New York City. And like maybe this is super cheesy, but I started, I have to tell you, like I like I read a poem on the subway through their like public art program. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Poetry in Motion. I love Poetry and in Motion. They're so good. It's amazing, right? Yes. Um, I I started crying on the subway when I read this poem. <laughs> um, you are not alone. I have definitely teared up on the subway from like random Poetry in Motion poems. It's it's so I, I actually have to describe Poetry in Motion. So apparently. It's a public program, and I think they've done about 200 or more poems to, like, millions of subway riders. The program displays two new poems each quarter on car cards, which are, like, the kind of sides of the the subway cars. Um, And I should say that the poems are chosen in collaboration with the Poetry Society of America, and submissions are not accepted. So um, I guess that rules me out. (laughs) For now. (laughs) Can I read you the poem that made me cry? Yes, I would love that. Please do it. Okay. Um, It's called Heaven, and it's by Patrick Phillips. It will be the past, and we'll live there together. Not as it was to live, but as it is remembered. It will be the past. We'll all go back together. Everyone we ever loved and lost and must remember. It will be the past, and it will last forever. Hmm. I love it. What made you feel so strongly about this poem? Um, it made me think of this quote. I don't even know where this quote comes from, so I shouldn't cite it. But um, when now becomes then, it was all so beautiful mm. or it was also perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's about nostalgia and the line, not it, as it was to live, but as it is remembered. Mm-hmm. Like I am in my own life so guilty of painting over things. And so when I paint a situation and experience as being beautiful. It is so beautiful and it is so much better than as it was to live. So what if you got to live in the beautiful memory as opposed to the lived reality? Sounds like heaven. I guess so, right? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Am I being cheesy? 
cheesy. No. I remember being so moved and then being like, who can I tell about this that won't laugh in my face because I got moved to tears by a subway poem that is kind of obvious. No, I feel like I'm basic all. bitch. <laughs> so you know when you're saying that the heaven poem reminded you of a quotation, but you couldn't really remember from where? Yeah. I thought you would like to know that Bart, in his essay, The Death of the Author, he's really famous for saying that a text is a tissue of quotations, but not from <gasps> one source, but from innumerable centers of culture. Wait, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and the idea that every text is just like kind of pulling together all these different quotations from everywhere at any given time. And the text might not even, the author might not even know they're putting them in there, but you as a reader can find these other quotations. It jumps your brain off to these other moments or places. And then you start to develop this reading, like your heaven reading, which kind of grows out of your own experiences, your own cultural interactions with other quotations, your memories, your personal feelings about how you remember. I think you just did a close reading and you felt moved. Gasp! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Um, And I guess the last thing I did want to share was like, you know, I was like picking my brain for like where poetry is in my life. Um, And I will say like, you know, I'm a really spiritual and actually religious person. And um, there is a really serious practice around poetry, um, around some of my religious practices within Islam. So, um, I'm Shia. We observe this period of mourning called Muharram. And like, that means we meet every day for 10 days and we reflect on this like very sad historical event and we lead with poems and they're in Urdu and they're so beautiful. And I don't even know, it's like such sophisticated old Urdu that like, I don't even understand half of it but I'm I'm often moved to tears by it and one of the really cool things is that like now that I don't go to a mosque that's only Urdu speaking or full of Pakistanis and South Asians people do like newly written English poetry Amazing. some of which is terrible and I'll be really honest with you it's like embarrassing to be there and it is a <laughs> um, it's a different way to observe suffering oh my god <laughs> but like when it's done well it's powerful and it it's about resistance and it's about power and it's about privilege and it's about responsibility and ethics and all the stuff that like like really moves me and like to me it's like the whole point of why we observe what we observe so like there's a place for poetry in my spiritual life that I didn't recognize as poetry because like I package it away as this like religious thing you know mm-hmm Yeah, and we didn't really talk about it that much today, but I feel like, you know, outside of the Anglo, white, American context, like, a lot of cultures really value and use poetry all the time, but it's really living, like, the way that you were talking about. Um, Whereas I think a lot of times when we teach it in school, it ends up being this, like, great master's version of it, and then it can end up feeling kind of dead. But I love your example because it's a great, you know, window into, like, engaging with living poetry. So if any of our listeners are high school teachers, you know, please try to try to think of ways that people experience poetry. It took me a really long time to understand. I don't know. I, I really feel like this this episode really pushed my thinking and I'm super grateful for it. So poetry is lurking in all kinds of places, whether it's staring out at you on the subway or built into the music in your earbuds while you're at the gym. Give yourself a minute to listen, to think about the layers of meaning and incredible beauty of language, 
and maybe even pick up a pen and try your hand at one of your own. So if you've been inspired by today's conversation, we've got a couple of ways you can engage with poetry. Every year, Bustle publishes a list of poems for people who think they don't like poetry, um, a la me, <laughs> and it includes compilations of witty tweets, things like Claudia Rankine's Citizen, Where the Sidewalk Ends by Charles Silverstein, um, that's an old throwback we all love, and uh, Warsan Shire's collection, Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. We'll link to that on our website. Yes, for sure. Another cool way um, is you can try writing a poem. Uh, a haiku is a great place to start. Like, think back to elementary school, y'all. Um, the <laughs> basic rules are that it's five, seven, five. Five syllables for the first line, seven for the second, and five for the last line. Um, but here's a fun fact. Given how syllables work in Japanese, if you want to be hyper accurate about it, it's actually more like three, five, three in English. So it's like super short. So you're really trying to capture a thought like in boop, the tiniest little handful of words. And the other like kind of little rule that you're supposed to use if you're writing haiku in Japanese is there has to be one season word, like a word that makes no. it like identifiable in a season. So um, we'll put a link to a collection of English language haiku that I really like. Um, but here, I'll read you one just to give you a sense of one that's written in English, but that also like has a season word inside of it. Please. So this is John Stevenson. Snowy night. Sometimes you can't be quiet enough. That's it. That's beautiful. I totally get it. Um, or if you want to do a little bit longer of a poem, um, there's a cool exercise that we'll link to um, by poet and teacher Tara Skirtu. Um, and that one's based on a memory of your own. And you kind of follow a couple of steps over the course of 10 minutes, basically, and you write out these little elements of your memory. And it kind of starts as the foundation for a poem. I love it. So yeah, I hope you all try it, and I hope you like this. And above all, as you go forward, no fear, y'all. It's your language to play with, so find something that feels welcoming and dive in. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a rating and review, especially if it's positive. <laughs> and do recommend us to your friends. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our amazing intern, Liv Carrollhawk, music composition and art design by the best ever, Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.